thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. And I'm Cindy O'Meara, and I'm here by myself. I have Kim off on a plane to New Zealand and Karen off to Singapore. So my guest today, I get to have all to myself. I get to ask all the questions. <laughs> and um, all of you who are listening will understand how excited I am about that because often we interrupt each other with all of our questions. But the gentleman that I have with me today is Joey Evans. He lives in South Africa and we met a couple of months ago now, maybe uh, at a a conference. We were both speaking at a conference uh, on the Sunshine Coast and we just happened to be at the conference table and I got to know Joey really well. The sad thing was, is he got to listen to my talk, but I never had the opportunity to listen to him. But my team members who were with me did. And I have not heard more praise for a, a talk, for a presentation as I did about Joey Evans. So I thought, right, I've missed out and I don't like missing out. So I wanted to hear his amazing story and get the opportunity to uh, you know, speak to Joey again. Plus, uh, let our listeners know exactly what um, determination, grit, um, perseverance can achieve when you really want to achieve it. So I want to welcome Joey Evans. Welcome, Joey. Oh, great. Thank you. So when we were chatting, I, I found this really interesting, is that when we were chatting, we were chatting business. And, um, and, and um, I really didn't know anything about you, but I did grab your book from you and I had a read and was stunned by what you had been through. So one of your loves is your motorbikes. So tell me, or tell me about that love of, like my son rode motorbikes and he's, he absolutely loves motorbike riding. But tell me about your love of motorbike riding and um, when did it start and how did it start and, yeah, just, just give us the story about it. Yeah, for sure. I, I never actually grew up riding motor, motorcycles, which is something that, that people find a bit surprising. Um, I grew up riding BMXs, you know, back in, back in the 80s in South Africa. Um, you know, if you had a BMX, you, you, you were pretty cool. And, and I used to love riding my BMX, but I, I always wanted to ride motorcycles, you know, especially off-road motor, motorbikes, you know, motocross, that type of stuff. But it, it just simply wasn't in the budget, I guess you could say growing up and so it took me till I was 26 before I bought my first motorcycle um, and that's really when I when I started with with motocross and then off-road and enduro type racing and that was really where I found my love is just you know riding through you know we, well we would call it uh, through the felt here I guess you guys would call it through the outback um, type of things you know just in these wild open places and that was just that just became uh, you know just the love for, you know, my sports, if that makes sense, or my hobby, you know, and just every weekend to go out with mates and go out to, you know, into the mountains, through the rivers, you know, across the country. That was just, man, it just is one of those things that you have to experience it, you know, when you're in these kind of places, it's, it's, it's pretty special. Yeah, I've read where you've ridden, Kenya, Mozambique, Swaziland, 
Namibia, Morocco, Bolivia, Botswana, Argentina. I was reading about it and I went, you've travelled the world riding motorbikes. Well, there's always, there's, there's, there's still a lot more to do. <laughs> but we have, we, we're pretty spoiled down here in, in Southern Africa. You know, from where I stay, you, you can ride just literally thousands of kilometres in, in any direction. Um, you know, and, and the terrain is so varying. You know, if we go up to Mozambique, it's, it's lots of sand, you know, lots of thick, deep sand everywhere. You know, we, lots of places like that. In, in Swaziland, it's very um, mountainous, same as Lesotho. And then we can go down to, um, you know, up to the, the Karoo or the Northern Cape where it's very arid, you know, a lot of like deserts, you know, move up to Namibia where it's full on desert, you know, um, you know, big, big sand dunes and this type of stuff. Um, and then Botswana, you've got some lush vegetation, um, lots of thorn bushes. You've got you to protect your arms there. But, um, you know, and you've also got, you know, wild animals. We had a race once where there were some lions on the route up there. And, and so, yeah, there's, we really are very fortunate down here. So it's probably the best riding has been, uh, you know, through South Africa and, and the neighboring countries here. Yeah. And I, I, I saw that you um, hiked Fish Canyon. Yes, that's right. Yeah, back in oh, long time ago now, it was about twenty years ago. But yeah, um, hiked the the Fish River Canyon in Namibia. Yeah, I I'm I'll be there in September, and I'm I'm hiking Fish Canyon. So I'm Brilliant. so excited to hike it. I'm not doing the five day hike, which is a pity. I'd love to do that, but I'm with a group of people, and we're just going down into the canyon and then coming back. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? I haven't. I actually haven't even been to North America. Uh, I just wondered, everyone says it's very much like the Grand Canyon, but there's no people. Is that true? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have no idea, but I can tell you that, you know, the time went away and, and the, the no people part is, is definitely true. You know, there's really, uh, you know, Namibia is one of the sparsely populated countries in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And, and it really is just a, a beautiful, arid, you know, expanse. You know, they, the, the distances are just vast. So... At the, you know, where you're going is a long way to drive from, from any major city or, or any major airport, you know. Um, so it's, a, it's generally pretty empty there, which is, which is a good thing in my opinion. Yeah. No, I, I'm agree with you. I spent a month in the Bibia a couple of years ago and I was in awe. I was in love. I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to keep traveling. I wanted to hike. Um, I know there's wild animals there, but I still wanted to do some hiking. And when I found out about Fish Canyon, as well as the 10 day hike um, along the river between Namibia and is it Angol? Angol? Angolia? Or anyway, there's a, a what is it? Angolia. Yeah, there's that 10, that 10 day hike. I was at the beginning of it and thinking, just put a backpack on my back and I'll be ready. <laughs> now, what, your book really interested me because um, it was from Para to Dakar, and yeah. I thought Para, para was a race. <laughs> yeah. um, and probably people listening right now would probably go, well, isn't it, Cindy? But you actually had an accident and you became a paraplegic. Um, would you like to talk about what the race was, what happened um, in that time? Yeah, sure. What happened was, um, you know, I, I got into racing, you know, in my twenties, you know, started with motocross, then into that endurance off-road and, and then I started to, to, to do well at the races. And so then I, I got into a situation where I started to compete for championships and things. And I was, you know, super focused on, on, on winning, on winning this, this one championship in particular. 
and in looking back, it's it's really silly. But but in your mind at the time, it was huge to win a championship. You know, that was man, that was what I was aiming for. And I was lying second in this championship, and I lined up at the start back in two thousand and seven, and waiting for the flag to drop. And I was determined to get to that first corner, you know, first. You know, that was what I, I needed to do for this championship. And and that turned out to be the last thing I remembered. And next thing I woke up flat on my back, you know, I'd obviously been unconscious. And as I woke up, I, I saw there was all people standing around me looking down at me, you know, paramedics and things. And I realized, uh, okay, yeah, we've I've obviously been unconscious. And what had happened was going into that first corner, there'd been a big pileup, you know, with the bikes, big high-speed accident. And in the mayhem, the other riders had ridden over me as well. And, and as I lay there just looking up at these guys, I thought, man, my mouth is so full of dirt. And I started spitting out this dirt, but it, it turned out to be my teeth. And what I'd done is I'd shattered 12 of my teeth right down into the gums and things and obviously being unconscious. But the next, the next thing was when I realized what the, what the true serious injury was, was when I realized I couldn't feel my legs. Um, there was no movement, no feeling from my chest down. And at that point, I realized that I'd, well, I would later realize that I'd broken my back and, and crushed my spinal cord at, at T8, T9. And it was a, it was a difficult day. You know, uh, you know, my wife was there that day. It was just a terrible tragedy and everything. And I ended up lying in the dirt there for three hours before we could get, um, you know, evacuated. And it was evacuated by road on a dirt road. So it wasn't the best scenario from a medical point of view, but transferred to three different hospitals and ended up in the capital Pretoria and that was when I was told look you, you you're paralyzed and you're not going to walk again and that was obviously a an incredible uh, you know thing to try and accept oh, I am sure it was very hard to accept I can't even imagine um that happening and then someone saying that to you and you you, and with your love of motorbike riding and and you know you're married have you did you have your four daughters by then yeah, yeah. I was um, at the time I was 32 years old, um, and yeah, we had, the day of the accident was the day before my oldest daughter's eighth birthday. So I had four daughters at the time, um, all aged eight and below. Wow, <laughs> that would have been <laughs> tough, very tough. So how long were you in the hospital for? And uh, but tell us your thoughts while you were laying in that hospital in the beginning, um, and and. And did they change as the days went by? And Because when I saw you, I saw you sitting. Um, you were sitting in a chair and you got up fine and you walked around and I noticed you had a little limp and I thought, oh, he's had an accident, you know, like thinking you broke your leg or something. Yeah. That was my thought. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, oh, gosh, he's a motorbike rider and he's bro <laughs> broken his leg. Uh, but little did I, I know that um, you were given a 10% um, chance of ever walking again. Yeah, that's it. You know, originally they said to me, I wouldn't walk again. That was, that was the deal. And at first you think, oh, you know, this, I'm sure there's something they, they, that they can do or something will change. And then as the days just tick away and tick away and you get absolutely nothing, you can feel nothing, you can move nothing. Um, and you watch, you know, well, I watched my legs just slowly disappear. You know, all the muscles just atrophied and my legs just got skinnier and skinnier. And along with this injury, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's really difficult. You know, I, I lost all bowel control, all bladder control, um, you know, the ability to digest food properly and things. And so it's a pretty miserable, <laughs> you know, pretty miserable telling you this is how it's going to be. 
the rest of your life. Mm. And it's a very hot reality to face. And it's a reality that obviously thousands of people face, um, you know, all the time. But it was just, it, it happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me is, is really how it felt. Um, and it was, it was very difficult each day just to kind of keep it all together mentally and, and physically as well. And it was, it was some really tough, tough, dark times. And as I, you know, as I lay there in that bed, you know, you kind of realize, well, well I realized that I've got two choices here. You know, you can either, you can either pack it all in and, and, you know, kind of get out of this world and, and just, you know, kind of leave all the pain and stuff behind you. But, or you decide to, to fight this and, and fight it, not just physically, but mentally, um, which is, I think, the big one because you can't, if you're waking up every day and you're just miserable and upset and, 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 you know, lamenting your lot in life and, you know, this is just so unfair and this is so hard for me, that you just become a miserable person. You know, you're, you're physically broken, but you don't have to be broken the other way. And so you've got to choose to either, to, to either get up and be positive and, and keep fighting this or, or to be miserable and, and take that route. And I decided, you know, I've got a lot to live for. You know, I've got my four beautiful daughters. Um, you know, I'm married to a fantastic woman. And, and I just decided, you know, I've got a lot to live for. And if it's going to be in a wheelchair, it's going to be in a wheelchair. But, but I'm, I'm going to live and I'm going to live properly. And I decided to, to fight this injury and do whatever I could. And one of the things that I, I thought about while lying there is, is a goal that I had. And, and the goal that I had was to, to race the Dakar Rally. And it would have been a goal for, for a number of years already. And I just said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still achieve that goal. That's going to be my line in the sand where, where if I can achieve that, then I've beaten this injury. Whether I walk or not, I, I want to race the Dakar Rally. And, and so that became, that became the goal. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, like just to walk would have been a good goal, but you decide to do the Dakar. Would you like to explain to everybody... Um, who's not into motorbikes and doesn't understand the grueling uh, race of the Dakar. What is it? Sure. The Dakar Rally was started back in, in 1978 um, by a Frenchman called Terry Sabine. And they originally, the, the first time the race ran, they, they raced from Paris um, to Dakar, the capital of Senegal. And it was all through the Sahara Desert and through countries like, you know, Mauritania, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, these kind of countries. And, and the race grew and grew, and it became known as the, the toughest off-road race in the world. The, the distance that you'd race was about 10,000 kilometers, which is, you know, the, to give an idea in terms of distance, it's the distance from Cape Town to Cairo plus 1,000 kilometers. So, and you do this distance in, in two weeks. So it became a race where guys would frequently ride through the night and, um, you know, guys would get lost up in the desert and, you know, there was a, it was, became quite an infamous race with, with riders and, and drivers dying, you know, uh, almost every year, you know, that the stats were in 39 years, more than 70 guys had, had been killed. Um, and so it became known as a really tough, really difficult, harsh race. But when I, when I heard about this race in my twenties and before I broke my back and things, I just was, you know, I looked at this and I was just, man, that I want to do that race. That just, that just sounds incredible. And so, and so that, you know, when I was lying there in the hospital, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to continue with that goal. That was, that was really the thing. Um, and over the years, the race had, had moved many times. You know, there was a lot of political in instability in North Africa. And so every, every year the route changed and often because of political pressures and things. 
but in 2008 was was a really difficult year for the organization because al-qaeda threatened to kill riders and drivers as they came through africa and so they they acted they, they ended up killing four french spectators um, just a, a day or two before the start of the race and under insistence of the french government the race was actually cancelled on the night before the race. And so they changed this race so many times. It didn't always run to Dakar. It ran to Egypt several times and it even ran the length of Africa once. But they made the biggest decision then in 2008 where they changed the whole race to South America. So from, from 2009, um, the Dakar Rally, as it's known, is now held through South America where the riders now race through countries like Paraguay, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, Peru, um, through the Andes Mountains and, and through the Atacama Desert now. And so that's where the, the race has been held for the last nine years. Oh, that would be and so that's kind of a, a brief history of the race. Yeah. And, and the race has well, become more and more technical. So, so in the beginning, it was very much a distance race. And we still do 9,000 kilometers now, which is obviously incredibly far. But now it's through a lot more technical terrain. So the bikes have become... Um, lighter bikes and and it's become more 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 rough if that makes sense you know more mountains more rivers more valleys as opposed to dirt roads how many um riders start versus how many riders finish what what's the percentage on that the finishing rate varies each year but it normally varies between about about 40 and 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 65 percent finishes Hmm, okay so let's go back to where you've made the decision that you're still going to race the Dakar. <laughs> um, that just blows me away that that was your decision. But, you know, it's always good to have uh, a goal in order to make changes. Was there somebody in particular that uh, helped you along the way? There was, there was so many, you know. That, you know, my wife was just incredible. You know, um, Meredith is her name and she was just right from the beginning she was at the hospital every single day and i was i was in the hospital for for you know a couple of months and and she was there just every day and um we had so many people rally around us in terms of friends you know fellow riders and um, people we knew friends of the family people would just visit you know every day all day every day they would they would make suppers for my family they would drop off four little pink lunch boxes every day for school lunches for my for my daughters um, they just did so much, you know. We had we had really so much support. Um, in the beginning, I didn't I didn't really speak much about the the Dakar goal. You know, a couple of close friends knew about it, but it was one of those things that that that, that you couldn't really speak about openly because people would see me in this wheelchair, and they would, you know, if I was talking, I'm going to race the Dakar rally. They would be. Um, this guy needs a little less medication, perhaps, you know. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it, was a, it was a really pie-in-the-sky kind of dream, you know, like never in a million years. But, but as, the, you know, as I started to tick away in the hospital and things, and then the, the doctor, he actually fused my back at, at T8 and T9 so um, to relieve some pressure off the spinal cord. And after he did that, I started to get... Um, just a little bit of, uh, you know, as the days passed, I got a little bit of movement in my right big toe. So if I really focused, I could make this right big toe just move just a little bit. But it, it kind of gave us some sort of hope and we just kind of clung to that hope and, and then I started to get a little bit of movement in my left ankle. But obviously by this time, my legs were just 
you know, so skinny and so weak and, you know, all the muscle was, was pretty much gone. But, but then I started to just see this, the small little changes. And those small changes obviously were encouraging to you in order to just keep going. That's it, you know, and, and, you know, you talk about the goal, you know, and things, and I do feel you need, you need goals and stuff. And with an injury like mine, one of the most frustrating things was no one could say, um, you know, when you break an arm, it's like, well, how long? Okay. You put the cast on six weeks after six weeks, the cast comes off, do a bit of physiotherapy, you know, about a month after that, you're going to be, you're going to be fine again and off you go. And that's the kind of answer you want when you're lying in hospital. Well, how long, what's it going to take? When will I be fixed? And it's not like that. It's a case of, we don't know if you will ever be fixed and chances are you won't be. Um, but just keep trying and keep pushing and, and keep working at it. And you're like, that doesn't cut it. You know, I need to know, you know, it needs to be measurable. You know, you need to give me a time period. You need to know, tell me how many, how many reps of this exercise I need to do? What, what, what's it going to take? And so it was so difficult to just keep going. And over the years, things might improve. You know, that doesn't cut it. Um, and so to have a goal where it was like, that made it measurable. If I, if I could race the Dakar Rally, I've beaten this injury. That was, and so it, it made it something that was tangible, something that was measurable. You know, you either get there or you don't. It's, it's, it's not a wishy-washy, keep trying and, you know, we'll support you kind of, kind of vibe. And that just didn't cut it. And so the goal became a very important thing to help me to, to push through the physical side of it. You know, there was a lot of mental and emotional challenges that went along with it. But from a physical point of view, it was like, whatever it took, that's the goal and that's what we're going to do. So once you got out of hospital, were you still in the wheelchair at that point? Yes, yeah. I was in the wheelchair for, 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 for a long time. Um, and it was also, you know, people sometimes see it as if you, you don't walk and then one day you walk. But it, but it obviously wasn't like that, you know. The, after he'd fused my back, that's when he said, look, there's a 10% chance you might walk, but if you do walk, you'll walk you know, really badly, you know, you'll need, you'll need crutches or Zimmer frames or that type of stuff, you know, and it, and it'll be really, you know, you'll walk very badly. And so that was when he gave me that, that possible chance, but it, it gave us something, you know, and it was, it, we then started with the physiotherapy and things. And so slowly, but surely I, I learned to, to stand with like these braces on my legs that kept my legs straight and this big back brace that kind of held me up upright and things. And, and then it started like that. And eventually I learned to stand without the braces on. And then I started to walk with the braces on um, between parallel bars and onto one brace and onto crutches. And, and that just took months and months of a little bit better, a little bit better each time. But the majority of, of, of time was spent in a wheelchair. Um, you know, so I came home and we had all the ramps. My brother-in-law and my brother built ramps into my house for me. Um, so we could get the wheelchair in and out and, um, you know, I'd have to, you know, shower with a commode and all this type of stuff. And it was, it was, it was really difficult times, you know, being in a wheelchair, people, people see you different. People stare at you in shopping centers. Um, you know, people treat you different. You know, I, I often share the story where I got into a lift the one day I was on my own. It was actually at the hospital and I pressed the button and the lift opened and I rolled my wheelchair into a lift and, and the lady looked at me and, and she, she went, what floor are you going to? 
you know, really, really slow and overpronounced and loud. And, and I kind of looked at her and I was like, it's the basement and it's just the legs. <laughs> because she obviously thought I had some kind of, you know, mental challenges as well and things. And so people don't, you know, they kind of judge you in a wheelchair. They, they treat you different and it's so crazy. And I'm sure, I'm sure I've done similar stuff, you know, with different things over the years from the other way around, but it's, it was just crazy. And it was a whole new, it made you just see the whole world differently in the wheelchair. You know, you realize how, you know, especially here in South Africa, how, how, how little um, things are made for, for people in wheelchairs, you know, how, how difficult everyday things are, you know, um, just going to the shops, just um, getting around places, it, you know, it was toilets, um, you know, public toilets and things. It was, it was terrible. It was, it was a real, real eye-opener for me. I'm sure it would have been, and especially if, um, you know, you've, you've not grown up with it and then all of a sudden you're thrown into it and you have to learn to adapt and be resilient. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, you had to have done is, number one, to adapt and the second is to um, be resilient. So at, at what point uh, did you uh, get to when you went, I can, I can do the Dakar, I, I can do this? Man, I, I, I really believed from the start that I would, you know, um, I thought, yeah, you know, I, I could do this, you know, but every day there's just, you know, those doubts when you, when you're not, suddenly I'm not walking again and, and it's taking forever and I'm, and I'm, and I'm realizing that every day when you wake up, wherever you are, that is as good as it could ever be. You, you could never, ever get improvement. And that's normally what happens with a spinal cord injury. And so there was no there was no guarantee I'd walk or walk, you know, well or anything like that. It was all just, you had what you had each day. And so it was very kind of demotivating to just keep, to keep pushing on, you know, keep going to the, doing the physio every day and, and, and the therapy and all this type of stuff, not knowing, but, but I did tick away and tick away. And it took, um, it was two and a half years after breaking my back where I was walking pretty good again. Um, you know, I, I can't run, I can't jump, any of that type of stuff. But I, I could walk okay. That um, I had the opportunity to to ride a motorcycle for the first time again, and it came about a bit by chance. And my friend Neil was across the road in in, in the bushveld, and and I saw him there teaching a friend of his to to ride a motorcycle. And I walked on over to the guys, and we we started chatting a bit. And then Neil said to me, "Hey Joey, do you do you want to do you want to give it a bash?" And I was like. Yeah, let's do this. And, and I think you kind of had the response of, oh, I was just joking, you know, kind of thing. But I was like, come on, you know, help me get on. And so he, he pushed down on the back of the bike and him, between him and his mate, they held the bike upright and helped me lift my leg over and things and get on the bike because I, I couldn't get on it on my own. Um, and I pulled out the, the Kickstarter to start this bike, but I couldn't hold it up with just one leg. And so I fell over with the bike still between my legs. And, um, and, and your mates, are, they don't have a lot of compassion and they had a good laugh at me. And I was like, come on, guys, you know. <laughs> you know, between the, the fits of laughter, they picked up the bike and got me back on again. And, and then he started the bike for me. And I rode that, that bike just for a couple hundred meters in a big circle, um, you know, just on this flat sort of grassy area. But, but not being able to run or jump or, or do the things that I used to do, the, the sports and stuff, to be able to twist that throttle and just move effortlessly was just, was just incredible. Um, so, uh, so liberating um, to get back on that bike. Uh. It was just, 
it was just wow. And in my mind, it, it just kind of made that, that Dakar goal so much real. I was like, one day, you know, one day. And the next thing I did is I, I bought a, a second-hand motorcycle and I got all the suspension lowered and I, and I cut the foam out of the seat to get it, to get me lower down to the ground so I could keep my feet flat on the ground when I stopped. And, and I started riding again and, and to be able to ride with my mates and, and, and go to these, you know, go, go outside into the, into the felt and, um, to these places that I love so much was just incredible for my mind. And each time I rode, I would think about this goal and I would think, you know, one day, you know, one day and it, and then slowly but surely it kind of, you know, the years, you know, the months turned into years and, um, it was, it was, I think about three and a half to four years after my accident um, where I stood at the start line of, of my first race again. Because if you ever want to race the Dakar, you have to qualify. So the way it works is you have to submit a CV with all the races that you've done and the championships and where you finished and this type of stuff. So if I was ever going to achieve my goal of racing the Dakar, I, I had to race again. And to be on that start line, you know, lined up with all these other riders waiting for that flag to drop once again was... <laughs> that was pretty tough. You know, I thought I was going to vomit <laughs> sitting on that start line. It was just, you know, all these memories came flooding back. And, you know, a lot of people are like, no, you're crazy. You know, you've hurt yourself once. Don't be silly. Don't go back. And, and I get it. You know, I can see that side of it. Mm. But, but also those people have never experienced what I've experienced. They've never ridden in the places I've ridden. They've never, you know, raced in these races. They don't, they don't know what it feels like, you know? And so it's, but I know, and I know the price I'm paying and it, in my mind, it made sense and it added up, but, but I understand that for people who haven't experienced it, it, it just seems crazy. What did your wife think? <laughs> I'm glad you asked me. <laughs> no, for, for her, it was, it was tough because you know, there's, there's, there's two sides of it. On the one hand, it, it, well, she was there the day I broke my back. You know, she stood on that start line next to me. Um, she watched me crash. She ran across that field. Um, she was one of the people looking down at me when I, when I woke up. And so for Meredith um, to see me riding again was, was or for me wanting to ride again and then to race again was, was very difficult. It was, a, it, it was tough from a, from a worry point of view. But at the same time, it was fantastic because she had, she knows, she knows me, you know, she knows me better than anyone. And she didn't marry a guy who, who sits on the couch, <laughs> you know, she married a guy who does these kind of things. And, 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 and so she knows that it's, that it's, it's what makes me tick. It's what, uh, you know, it kind of gives me that it feeds something inside of me, you know, to be out there in the, in the open places and, and do these kind of things is, is, is what makes me happy. It's, it's, and so I guess for her, it was, it was really tough from a worry point of view, but it was also fantastic that I could, I could come back and I, and I started to get that spark and started to just, you know, be, be living again in, in, you know, to do these kind of things, you know, um, that I'd kind of not, not quite full circle, but I'd kind of come full circle in a way of, I used to ride, I used to race, then I'm paralyzed, I'm in a wheelchair and it's very difficult dealing with, you know, pushing yourself around in a, in a wheelchair wearing nappies when you're in your 30s is, is, is pretty humbling and difficult. Um, and so then to be back on a motorcycle, being able to ride in the mountains and race again was, was fantastic f for my mind and, and she could see that in me. And so it was, 
it was really good from that side, but yeah, she would worry. And it, it was difficult at times for sure. Mm, um, I'm just in her position right now and I'd be going, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> but um, I also understand that, you know, your passion and your love, you can't, you can't stop that. How many races did you uh, have to do before you were able to qualify for the Dakar? Well, you have to do, you know, there's no like real number on it. You know, most guys would be racing their whole lives. You know, the, you, you submit a CV with all these races on and things. The, the important thing is that you have a number of multiple day races as well as you have to complete a, a race um, on the international rally calendar. So there's about six of these international rallies that normally last about six or seven days, normally about half the distance of the Dakar. And you have to finish that in, in the pro class um, to to be able to submit a CV. If you don't have an international rally on it, they're not even going to look at it. So you kind of build up these races, do an international rally, and then you submit your CV and you, and you hope to get an entry. And what year did you end up doing the Dakar? Um, I ended up last year um, on the start line of the Dakar on the 2nd of January 2017. And so for me, it was a case of that over the years, I built up, I built up these, these individual day races. Then I did some multiple day races, some that went through Botswana and South Africa and Namibia and these kind of places. And, and then I, I finally did my international rally in Morocco. So in 2016, we, we, took, we took our savings, you know, we'd, I guess I got to kind of fill you in on this part. I came back from a race in 2015, um, which was a seven-day race, which had just been a, a particularly brutal, tough race that I'd, that I'd managed to finish. It was 5,000 kilometers. And I came back and now I'm just ready. You know, I, I know I've got to do this. And I sat down with Meredith and I said to her, I want to race the Dakar Rally in 2017. And, and when I told her that, she cried. And it was... It was so tough to, to, um, to see this. And, you know, you talk about both sides of the story and it was really one of those where I looked at this and I thought, you know, I don't want to be this guy that gives up my family chasing a goal. You know, the Dakar Rally, it's this big goal in my mind, but it's, it's just a race. It's just a, a two-week race. It's not, it's not my life. It's not, um, it's not everything. And I, and, and I actually decided that day that, okay, I don't need to race the Dakar. I can find other goals. It's, it's not the end of the world. You know, I, I can do it. And I decided not to do it actually. And it was a few days later that Meredith came to me and she said, you know, I want you to do this race. You know, it is so scary for me and you, you got to understand how difficult this is, but I've seen all these things that, that your accident has taken away. You know, I've seen um, the challenges you've gone through over the last 10 years you know, just keep working towards this goal and things. And it's, and it's scary for me, but, but I want you to achieve your life goal. I want you to achieve this so bad. And so as a family, we're going to back you 100%. And, and we're going to race that Dakar rally in 2017, whatever it takes. And to have her on board like that, you know, I was just, yeah, we're going to do this. But she said, there's two conditions. <laughs> and, and the first thing is, you're not allowed to die. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> and the second thing is you have to finish this race because if you don't finish, you're not going back. You've got to do it. You've got to finish and come back and we're done with this, you know, with this goal. And, and so, yeah, that was the deal we made. And, and then we took, um, we took all our savings, you know, we didn't, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot of cash, but we took all our savings and we, we bought a, 
I bought a place on a, on a French team um, called Nomad Racing and I went over to Morocco to go and race in the Mazuga Rally, which was a six-day race through, through Morocco and to, to qualify to race the Dakar Rally. And so I went and did this race and I, and I finished that race. It was, I mean, there were so many things I could tell you about it, but the bottom line was we finished it, came home and I submitted my CV um, to the Dakar organization. Uh, which is which is the race is owned by ASO, the same guys who own the Tour de France. And so I submitted the CV and I waited. And it took about six weeks. And about six weeks later, I got an email and it said, uh, you know, dear Joey, you know, congratulations, you've been accepted to race the Dakar Rally. And man, when I read that, that was just, that was a, that was a big moment. But the thing is, it costs, um, you know, a small fortune to race the Dakar Rally. I'm, I'm just thinking in, in, in terms of, um, in terms of Aussie dollars, it, it would be about a hundred and ten, about a hundred and ten thousand dollars. Oh my and goodness, so that is a lot. I, yeah, I, and I didn't, I didn't have it, you, you know. And on top of that, you need another, another sixty thousand um, Aussie dollars to, for the for the motorcycle that you need. And so I didn't have that money, you know. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any of it. <laughs> and and it's six months from getting that entry to the start of the race. And so I sat down with Meredith and my daughters and we decided, okay, we're going to raise this money. Whatever it takes, we're going to make a plan and raise this money. And so we started, we started doing fundraising where we did um, fundraising evenings where we had, um, you know, I had a couple of speakers and we got some people to donate some prizes and we did some raffles where my daughters would go table to table and sell these raffle tickets and things. And then we, we did some enduro bike events. We did some, adventure bike events we sold caps and we sold t-shirts and we did pretty much anything we could think of just to raise money and one of the things we said was that anybody who donates will put your name on the on the bike as well and we had more than 320 people you know donate you know anything from 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 100 rand to, to 10,000 rand you know it was just we put all these names on on the bike and just a couple of days before i had to leave for dakar we, we reached that target um, and it was just incredible. That's phenomenal because that, that's, um, I know what the RAN is like too, you know, it's, it's um, has a lot less worth than the Australian dollar. So you would have been it really working hard to, to get that amount of money together in order to, to do that race. So yeah. it's the, yeah. oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say it was one of those things that when we started fundraising, never in a million years did we think we'd actually get the full amount. You know, I'd already like organized with the bank to extend the bond on my house and all sorts of stuff. And, 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 you know, just working together as a family, we just, we, we managed to get it. It was just, it was just, you know, unheard of. Um, on the back of your book, it, you know, it says it's a story of friendship, respect, compassion and kindness. And I, I'm already feeling that when I, you know, I have had a few tears in my eyes as you've been telling me, you know, this story. And, and I'm in awe of your wife, actually. I just think that, you know, for her to, that, that's a lot of money, number one. You could, you know, be part of the family, number two, with, with that money. I, I don't know. There's just... She obviously oh, yeah. had such respect and, and such love for you that she was prepared to um, help you reach that uh, goal that you had. And considering where you had come from, 
uh, I do get it, but I would still have been quite afraid if I was her, you know, because <laughs> don't I, die yeah. and finish it. No, it, really was, it really was. And it was so scary, you know, and, and she was she was super concerned. And it's one of those where she was so concerned and it was it was really tough to, to, to look, um, you know, from the outside and not have control, you know, and it was, yeah, she really did. She, she went through a lot. And, but I can honestly say that, that she just backed me 100%. And, and to have that, you know, in your corner, for lack of a better way to, to phrase it, mm. just makes you want to just, man, you want to just do your best. You know, you want to make sure that you, you know, you make her proud and, you, and, you, and you, you nail this thing properly, you know. Yeah. So was she at the start of the race with you on January 2nd, 2017? Was she there? No. No, she was, she was back home here in South Africa. We spoke about it, you know, to be at the start or to be at the finish. Um, firstly, it cost, you know, a lot of money. And, and we'd really just, you know, obviously scraped together this money just to, just to get there was the one thing. Um, there's also no guarantee you're going to finish. You, you know, half the guys that start don't finish. So to, to book flights and things for her to be there at the end um, was, was a challenge. Also having four daughters um, and being in South America, America now for Meredith to come over to to South America she would have been traveling on her own um you know with a connecting flight through through Brazil and things and then um into um Argentina and stuff it, it would have been a an extra concern for me um that she's that she's now flying you know and coming through and you know that type of stuff and we had our daughters back home which are just as worried just as there's a lot of um you know pressure and strain on them they, they were they're teenagers now and so it was it was one of these setups where we spoke about it a lot because I really, really wanted her to be there, especially at the finish. Um, and we spoke about it. We went back and forwards a bit and we decided, no, you know, she would stay at home um, with my daughters. From a point of view, they're all together. They're safe. I know where they are. Um, it's, it's, it's one less thing for me to think about while I'm racing. And, and we would have a moment when I got back at the airport. You know, that would be our... It would be our finish. So no doubt doing something like the Dakar, you need a team. Who was behind you when you were at that starting point? Well, there was, there was really thousands of people, you know, so many people back home, it, it helped raise the money. And so, you know, they're all watching those computers and they're all like, come on, Joey, you can do this, you know. And, it's a, you know, we, had a, we, we obviously made a, you know, we publicized as much stuff as we could and so many guys helped to help to just spread this word and, and, and get it all out there. And because I had to, from a, from a fundraising point of view. So by the time I left, a lot of guys knew about it and things. Um, I joined a, a Dutch team as far as the, the actual race goes. And so I had a Dutch mechanic and I was part of a team called Bash Trucks. And so on that start line, I was just there with, 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 with the mechanic and, and the team that I was with. But back home, it was just, you know, thousands of people watching computers and, 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 and willing me on, you know. And it had taken, it, you know, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm the guy on the start line. But there were so many guys that were involved to get me to that start line. It really wasn't, it really wasn't all me. There was... It was literally thousands of guys right from over the 10 years from the hospital, the guys who had come to the hospital, the guys who had, um, you know, helped me and my family in those really dark, dark times in the beginning. And then the guys who would wait for me on rides over the years, you know, be pretty patient with this guy who keeps dropping his bike on the rocky climbs and <laughs> has to stop in new catheters and, <laughs> you know, all this kind of stuff. They were some pretty good guys. And then, 
you know, raising the money. And then, you know, the guy, you know, my team at Dakar, there were so many guys in mm. investing in my dream. All right. So right us through the race. Were there any times that you just wanted to, uh, why am I doing this? Did you ever have that thought? What, what was I thinking? Did you ever oh, have that man. thought? Every day, every hour, every minute I had that thought, you know, you, you line up at the start of that race and, and we lined up in, in Asuncion, Paraguay and they have a big starting ramp and you ride up this ramp to the start and you stop your motorcycle right on the top and there's big crowds there, you know, thousands and thousands of people and the music's blaring and they're cheering and, you, and you're kind of waving to the crowd and the guy's interviewing, you know, and he's announcing your name, Joey Evans, and everyone's cheering and it's just, it's just wow, you know, it's just incredible. But it's one of the few races in the world where as an amateur, you're racing shoulder to shoulder with true professionals. You know, you can imagine if you're a cyclist and you're on the start of the, the Tour de France, you know, or you're, or you're a runner and you're standing there shoulder to shoulder with the guys at the start of, of, of the marathon at the Olympics or something, you know, that's really what it is. You're at this big stage, massive event and you're just an amateur. And for me, when I started that race, you know, obviously I, I learned to walk again and things, but I can't run, I can't jump. Um, I still can't feel hot or cold or, or pain sensation um, below my chest. Um, I still have limited bowel control, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good, but it's, it's not right. And I, and I still have to use catheters. And so I'm, I've still got a lot of physical challenges that I'm dealing with and I'm standing there on that start line and just on this big stage. And there's no reason why I should finish this race physically really, you know, but, but I kind of looked at it and I thought, you know, I probably shouldn't be here in the first place. <laughs> and so I'm here, you know, I beat the odds to get here. And you, you better believe you're going to see me on that finish line. Mm. Um, but in your mind, you know, you've got, there's so many times over the years, and especially in the weeks leading up to Dakar, where you're like, what am I doing, man? This is just crazy. This is, this is just insane. You know, it's, it's way beyond my capabilities. And then you started racing. And we started racing and, and, and you get through the first day and, and I was okay, you know, and then the second day hit and the second day was the biggest, it was, was now the race was in full swing and it was a tough, tough day and I rode into the night, you, you know, and it was, it was hard and finishing day two, I was like, man, I was physically broken. I thought how I felt was how I expected to feel at the end of the race. But I got through that day two and then I got through day three and, and the race was 13 days. And then on day four, one of my teammates, a fellow South African, Walter Tablanche, um, he, he went out on day four. And there was, there was only three of us South Africans um, that started the race. Um, up until that point, out of interest, only nine South Africans have, have ever finished the Dakar rally on a motorcycle. And there was three of us on that start line. And so on day four, Walter, he went out, he burnt out his motor at high altitude in a, in a very, very difficult section that was just a lot of dunes and very soft dunes and a lot of riders went out that day and he was one of those riders. And so we were down to just the two of us and it was hard to see him go out. And then um, on day four, I, I twisted my leg. I caught my foot on a bush and it ripped my foot off the foot peg and I ended up tearing the ligaments on the inside of my left knee. And I went to the medics you know, I got through the rest of that day, but I went to the medics that night and they had a sonar machine there in, in the middle of the bivouac, which was pretty crazy. And I was, <laughs> I was um, by an orthopedic surgeon in a tent with the sonar machine and, and, he, and he said, yep, you've torn the ligaments in your knee. 
And yeah, man, I just thought, man, this is it. It's going to be over. And he called over the head doctor and the way it works is he has to, um, you know, the head doctor has a look at this injury and then they decide if you can continue or not. And if, if you're injured too badly, they pull you from the race and there's nothing you can do to keep your place in the race. And he showed it this so not to her and she had a look and she checked money and she said, yep, you know, you're torn the ligaments on the inside of your knee and I recommend we pull you from the race. But if you want to continue, your knee is stable. And so we will let you continue if you choose that, you know, but she recommends to pull me. Man, I'm like, it's taken me 10 years, you know, a couple of ligaments, we can hack that, you know. And so I got him to tape up my knee and I put a brace on it, one of those neoprene ones with the metal hinges on the side and strapped it all down and got my, 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 you know, my riding gear over the top of it, you know, my knee guards and it got it into my boots and everything. And I was on that start line on day five. And then on day five, the other South African, David Thomas, had a massive high-speed crash in, in the Andes Mountains. And I, I came across him um, just out there and I saw his bike just, just standing there. And it was, I was like, oh, that's Dave, you know. And as I got closer, the medics had got there already and, and he'd broken his leg in, in nine places. Oh. He was just you know, in a terrible mess and I helped to load him into the chopper and it was just, man, it was harsh. And, and by that end of day five, I'm the last South African left in this race and I've had my two mates go out, one with a horrendous injury and I'm, I'm physically broken and you're just thinking, man, what am I doing here? I need to just, I just want to, I just want it all to end. But, you know, I made those promises to finish this race and, you know, and I, and I, this was a life goal. I've got to, I've got to just push through to the end. And I got through day six and day seven and day eight, day nine. And there's so many things that happened every day. And out of the 13 days, I got, I got all the way to day 12. And on day 12, it was, it was, that was just a day that I'll remember my whole life. And, you know, the way it works at Dakar is they, each morning, they send off the, the motorcycles first at 4 a.m. So all the motorcycles go and after the last motorcycle, then they send the cars. And after the cars, they send the trucks. But the cars and the trucks are a lot faster than most of the bikers. And so every day as a biker, we get overtaken by cars and trucks. And it's an incredibly dangerous scenario. And so they've created a system to try and make it a lot better, to try and make it safer. And the way it works is as a car or truck sees a rider in the distance, they'll press a button in their car and it sends off an alarm on your bike that just beeps away, beep, 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 like this. And as a rider, you hear this, and you turn around and you see this vehicle normally about 200 meters back, and you pull to the side of the track, and these guys come flying past you, just whoa, just so fast, and they cover you in dirt and rocks and dust and everything. And then you wait for the air to clear, and you double-check there isn't a second vehicle, and then you get back in the track and you start riding again. And this is something that had, that had happened to me, you know, a few hundred times over the last 12 days. But on that day, you know, I'd had some, some other challenges the previous few days and things. And so I was, I was stone last in the bike category. I was the very last biker. And, um, you know, I, over the years, I got used to being lost. <laughs> you know, before the accident, I was, I could win some races and I'd podium races and, you know, chasing championships but over the last 10 years I'd I'd often finish races you know stone last and so there I was in stone last once again and my siren went off and I turned around and this vehicle was not 200 meters back this big rally car was just you know about 30 meters back and he was doing you know more than double my speed and at the time I was riding in a deep rut 
and there's a biker in these deep ruts, you can't really go very fast because you can't see what's at the bottom of the rut because the rut was filled with fish fish, which is really fine, powdery, um, you know, sand. I think you guys call it bull dust over there. Yeah. And it was, it was just this rut was was just full of this. And so we're riding as bikers, you know, pretty tentatively through these ruts. But the cars and trucks, they just put the wheels inside the ruts and, ruts and just floor it. And so I turn around and I see this guy and I try to turn out of this rut and the front wheel is just dragging up against the side. But this guy's right on me and he's just, he's going to, you know, there was just nothing I could do. And I, and I just, as he's right onto me, this bike is leaning over, but staying in the rut. And I just separated, kind of dived off the bike. And this guy just rode right over my motorcycle and just completely destroyed the bike. And he got about 30 meters up and the navigator stood out of the car and the, the air is just clearing with all this dust. And he kind of gives me a thumbs up and I look at him and I'm like, no, you know, as this, as this air is clearing and I'm slowly seeing this bike just in pieces. And he got back in the car and just went. And I just knelt there next to this bike that's just completely destroyed on day 12 of 13 after a 10 year journey to try and get to the start of this race. And it was just, man, it was just too much to handle. I couldn't believe it. And I dragged that bike out of the, out of the trench and, and I stood it up and, and it was just, man, I couldn't believe that on day 12 of 13, that this is how my Dakar dream ends. And it was just, man, it was just, it was just too much to handle. Mm -hmm. So what did you do? Was that it? You, did, you, you weren't able to go on? Did you get another motorbike? Did you fix it? Were you, as we call them here, a bush mechanic and, and got it together again? Man, I, I carry a satellite phone and, and I thought about, you know, Meredith back home um, because she, she was following me on the computer. So she would have seen that suddenly I was just stopped Hot. in the middle of it and, and not moving. And I knew she was going to be worrying about me. And I thought, you know, I've got, I've got, to, I've got to let her know. And I, and I carry a satellite phone, um, you know, from a safety point of view and, and things. And I pulled out the satellite phone and I opened up that area and I got some signal and I stood there and I phoned her up and I, and I told her, I said, look, you know, I'm not injured because she's, she's had that phone call a few times. Mm. Um, but, uh, but I'm out of this race. This is what's happened. And, and she just cried, man. And I stood there. Um, and, you know, I, I don't like to tell my buddies, but I, I stood there crying. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, tell us girls. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you say only girls listen to this program, hey? Mainly girls, <laughs> yep. But I'm sure a lot of the girls are going to get their husbands to listen to this. So we'll never know. <laughs> you just oh, edit yeah. um, but no I, no, I have no problems with that. I stood there crying mm. and it was, just, it was just too much. I mean, now that you know the journey to be standing there, on day 12 or 13 after 10 years and to go out in such a cruel cool way was just, man, it was just so much, it was too much to handle in a way. Mm. And I told Meredith and, and, and we stood there just, just crying together. We were thousands of kilometers away from each other, but different continents. And it was like, we were just standing next to each other. And I hung up that satellite phone and I, and I just decided that, you know, yeah, I'm out of this race. I knew I was out. There was nothing I could do. I still had 660 kilometers to race that day. Um, but I decided that I, I'm not going to be that guy that just, that just sits under a bush and, and waits for the chopper to come pick him up or the sweeper truck. I decided that, that what I would do 
is I would do whatever I can to just keep moving. And when that, when that sweeper truck eventually gets to me, I'll be moving when he gets to me because I'm only out at four o'clock the next morning. I can stand there the whole night or I can walk or I can push this bike or whatever it is. And at four o'clock is when I'm out because that's when my start time is for the next day. And only when you miss your start time for the next day are you out the race. And so I decided I'd do what I could. And so I took out my spanners and, you know, my toolkits and things. And I, I started trying to fix the bike and I, I had three petrol tanks on the bike and two of them were, were destroyed. There was just one petrol tank with a couple of liters in and I disconnected those, those damaged petrol tanks and I disconnected all the wiring at the back of the bike because the whole tail end of the bike had all been ripped up with all the, the wiring exposed. And so I disconnected all, all the back, back of the bike electrics. My right foot peg had been completely broken off. My exhaust was flattened and, and bent up into the back wheel and so I took the whole exhaust off the bike the whole frame of the bike was bent and all the seats had been ripped out of the mountings and I, I got the seat back in and kind of cable tied it back into the bike. My handlebars were bent and my suspension was bent and I kind of straightened it up as best I could, but it was still all bent and I, my navigation tower on the bike was, was all destroyed. So the bars wouldn't even turn on the bike. So I took some of the stuff of the, some of the navigation equipment off the front just to, so the bars could turn a bit and and I got that bike to start, but I only had about two or three liters of petrol and I had about another 65 kilometers to the next point where I might be able to get petrol. And there was no other riders behind me, so I couldn't get any of any other riders or anything like that. But I, I got that bike working. It took me a good hour and, and I climbed on that bike and I started riding it again, but I only had the one foot peg and the, and the leg which had the foot peg was the one I torn the ligaments in my knee. So I've got this, I was like, what's the, what's the odds on that? Yeah. And so I had this one foot on the foot peg and I had my knee on the seat of the bike and I, and I just started going um, and I couldn't stay on the track anymore in the deep ruts and things um, with, without the foot peg and with the cars and trucks passing every now and again. And so I just zigzagged through this arid environment, just trying to keep going. And it was just, it was soul destroying knowing that you're out the race but you're still in the race, but you're out. There's nothing you can do that'll get me 660 Ks. You know, I'm, I'm ticking along here at like an average of 10 or 20 Ks an hour. There's no ways there's, you know, well, it was probably a lot closer to 10 Ks an hour. Um, and I've got 660 Ks to go, you know, at that rate, that's 66 hours of riding, you know, that I'm going to have to do at this rate. And I've got, you know, um, you know, at the time, I'm trying to think, I probably had about 15 or 16 hours, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning um, until, uh, until I'm out this race. And so it was just, it was just hopeless, you know. Um, but but I, th I said, no, I'm going to move. And when they pick me up, I'm going to be moving. And so that's what I did. And I just ticked away. And it was about 20 or 30 kilometers later, you know, I'd been, I'd been going, you know, for, for a few hours now. And just, man, this whole dream is just gone. And I'm just kept pushing and pushing. And then the most incredible thing happened. <laughs> and there in the middle of this, this desert, this sort of semi-arid environment in the middle of South America, there was a motorcycle just standing there, a KTM 450 rally replica, exactly the same bike as mine, just standing there in the middle of the desert. And I saw this bike and at first I was like, you know, it didn't really click. I was like, what, what, what's happened kind of thing. And I went up to this bike and on the bike, 
the tracking equipment had been taken off the bike. And so what happens is when a rider is injured, they, they evacuate the rider with a helicopter and they take all the, all the tracking equipment off the bike and they keep it with the rider so they know where the rider is. And so I saw this and I figured that, okay, this rider is being evacuated out. And then there was three other guys there and these guys were just spectators. They were Argentinian guys on old dirt bikes just in the middle of this desert and they were you know, in the middle of nowhere kind of following the, the Dakar kind of thing. And, and, the, and they came over and they couldn't speak English and we kind of signaled and stuff. And they said, they, they kind of, um, you know, a bit of charades there. And they said the guy had broken his arms and he'd been medevaced out in the chopper. And so his bike sits there now and it gets picked up by the sweeper truck at the back of the race. And suddenly it dawned on me <laughs> that I can use some of the stuff from this guy's bike. Because the rules of Dakar is that I can't ride his bike but I can use spares from his bike. And so then that's what we started to do. And so with the help of these three guys, we stripped the exhaust off that bike. We siphoned all the petrol out of that bike. We stripped the whole cradle for the foot peg and I got a foot peg, um, you know, which took a long time because we had to get the whole bolt from through the swing arm and all sorts of stuff. It was just crazy. And we spent, you know, a good hour or so there stripping this bike and putting it onto my bike. And I needed a lot more stuff, navigation equipment and all sorts, but we're just out of time now. You know, the time's going and I've still got to, fit, I've still got to ride another 630 kilometers. Um, and by now it's early afternoon. And, and so the chance of me getting in by 4 a.m. the next morning are just getting slimmer and slimmer. And so we had enough to ride with. And I said, yep, that's it. I'm going to go. And I thanked these guys. And, you know, I got on that bike and, and now I started riding. And I rode on and, and the time just went and it was started to get dark and it was six o'clock at night and then seven o'clock and eight o'clock and nine o'clock and I just kept riding and I rode through South America there just in the dark all on my own, you know, going through dunes and mountains and crossing rivers. And when you get to rivers on a motorcycle at night, your light just shines on the surface and you can't see how deep the river is. You can't see if it's rocks or sand at the bottom. You have no idea. And I just entered these rivers almost blind all on my own. Um, in South America in the middle of the night and it was 10 o'clock at night and I was still riding and 11, 12, 1, I'm still riding, 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm still riding and at 11 minutes past 2, I reached that, that second last okay. camp of the, of the Dakar Rally and I pulled in there and it was just, man, my, my teammate, Walter DeBlanche, who had gone out on day four, he was standing at that front gate waiting for me. You know, just after two in the morning and, you know, I went up to my team and my guys are there and I pretty much fell off the bike <laughs> and, and the guys just, you know, they, they just couldn't believe it, you know, and they were just cheering and it was just, wow. And then I slept for an hour. They, they managed to, to fix it, give me a road book again, which is like the thing where I can read the instructions at least now. Um, and, uh, and I rode another, after an hour's sleep, I was up again. I was on that start line at 4 a.m. And I rode, I rode another 700 kilometers that last day and, and finished the deck already. Wow. That is just um, an amazing story. You know, as you were um, saying that there was a motorbike just sitting there, it's almost like um, the universe had positioned it there for you. And I do this thing called manifesting, Joey, um, and I, I learned it from an incredible woman and she wrote a book called Manifesting Matisse and she actually did it for her son and she had these 10 steps and one of the steps is um, let go and let the universe deliver. 
And I felt that as soon as um, you said that motorbike was just standing there, is it let go. You just, you just, you made the decision that you weren't going to uh, let the sweeper car pick you up standing still. Um, yeah. and, and obviously you were urged on because that's what you were to come up against. So I, like that, it's just um, amazing. <laughs> now, I, I want to ask you, if, if you, um, you know, they always say that things that happen to us, um, you know, happen for a reason, and I'm sure you hate hearing that. But if I was to ask you if, if you know why, you know, the accident happened, um, what, what would you say was the reason in your life that such a thing happened to you? Man, you know, like you say, you know, that people have said that to me so many times over the years, you know, and in the beginning when you're lying in that hospital bed and you're paralyzed and people are saying, you know, everything happens for a reason, you want to say, hey, just stuff off, man. I don't <laughs> hear that. You know? yeah. and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm toning it down now. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it, it's one of those things where you, you have no idea what it's like to be paralyzed. How, and now you're telling me it's for a re reason, please. You, you know, I, you know I'm... I'm more of a, like a, a factual kind of kind of guy, you know, and so it, it's a, you know, when someone says that to me, it just made me mad, you, you know, I, I was just like, no, you know, come on, you, you know, this happened because I was racing and I had an accident and, and it really sucks and there's no reason behind it. It's just really miserable. And, and it was, it was tough being like that. And, and as the years go on and you, you're dealing with this injury and, and I mean, I still deal with it daily now with catheters and this type of stuff, you know, and it's still a lot of challenges, but it's, but as you go, it, it's tough, man. And for people to tell you, oh, it's all with a reason, it's, it's hard to accept. Yeah. But the best way to describe it is when I look back now at that guy riding over my bike, it was the same thing. I sat there on the floor, um, you know, I sat there in the dirt, I should say, in, in, in the middle of South America with this bike just in pieces, just completely destroyed. And, and it was so hot. And I was seething. I was just so angry at this guy who had just callously run over me and carried on um, as if it was a non-event in his life. But he nearly killed me and he destroyed this 10-year dream. And he has no idea of my story and where I've been and what it's taken me to get there. And, it's, and he's just indifferent. And I was just... I was so angry, uh, you know, and, and just, just furious and, and just, man, it was hard. And I look back now, and now that you know my story and you, you know that, you know, the whole setup, that was one of the best things that ever happened in my life. To have a, a story like mine, to, to, to be able to get to the Dakar is just incredible. But to give it an ending like that, mm -hmm. being run over in finding another bike. You can't make that stuff up, man. That is just incredible. That is, that is so cool. <laughs> you know, it was just, what a way to end it. Mm. And I look at that and think that was one of the best things that had ever happened in my life was that guy running over my bike. Mm. And then I about my accident, you know, about breaking my back. You know, Karen Smith, who um, is usually one of the um, people that it would have interviewed you, but she was in Singapore. She says this, she says, experiences are something that happen that allows us to expand. Our job yeah. is to become extraordinary because of it. And um, I think I see expansion and extraordinary in 
in what you did, even without that ending, I still think your experience allowed you to expand and to become extraordinary. You know, I, I don't know of many people that would do what you do. Like I always, I've, I've climbed Himalayas, I've climbed the Andes, I've climbed, I love to climb, but I'll never climb Everest and I will mm. never go to K2 because I don't, I, I don't want that pain. Yeah. <laughs> and and I doubt I'd ever do the Dakar, especially after becoming a paraplegic. <laughs> so you are extraordinary, Joey. I you know Thank your you. your yeah. story uh, is amazing. <laughs> it's not all that, but it's um, but it's it, but but you know, comparing that that time with a car going over the bike and mm. and then the time being paralysed, there are days where I wish I, I still had full functionality for sure. But I do look at it and I think, you know, at the end of your life, you want to look back on your life and you don't want like a smooth run. You want ups and downs. You want an adventure. You want excitement. You want tragedy. You want it all to be mixed in and you want to lie on that deathbed with this rich experience that, that lies behind you. But in order to have that, you've got to have the downs. The ups mean nothing without the downs. You have to have the full journey. And so to have been paralyzed and to be able to come back and, and race the Dakar rally and that type of stuff is just, it's been terrible and it's been fantastic. And I'm, and I'm grateful that, that it happened to me. You know, um, you, you actually have just found a new normal, really. In that last 10 years, you, you had to find a new normal. You could never be the Joey Evans before that accident in 2007. But what you did was you found a new normal, which um, in... in is probably a greater normal and more extraordinary normal than than maybe no one like I wouldn't have met you not that that's a big deal to you but <laughs> it is to me you know I I wouldn't have met you and heard your story I, you wouldn't have come to Australia those 260 people in that room would not have heard you uh, and you just don't know what doors it opens up because you know we had the conversation um, when we were together um, about what are our excuses about doing what we really want to do yeah so um you know and those excuses you've just got to get them out the door and you've got to um yeah do what you have to do so it's 2018 yeah what's what's your future what what's your latest goal what are you doing where are you going how can people i you know i heard that you were the the most amazing speaker um and people said they were taken from highs to lows. So how do people um, in Australia, because we usually have Australian, New Zealand and American people listening to us, how do people find you? Uh, what, what's your website? Um, where yeah. will you travel to speak? <laughs> Let us know. No, sure. Look, the, coming back from Dakar, there was, you know, there was a lot of opportunities because suddenly you know, a lot more people knew about my story in South Africa and, and I had some good TV coverage and that type of stuff. And, and I was like, man, what do, what do I want to do? You know, I want, I want to do something different with my life and, and things. And the opportunity came up to write, write the book. And so, so I wrote the book. And, and I wrote it all myself. It wasn't a ghostwriter or anything like that. And I, and I wrote the book. And it was so fantastic to be able to just put it all down and just put the whole story out there. That was just, it was incredible from, from that point of view. And so, and then I started to get asked to do talks at, at different companies and, and bike shops and this type of stuff. And I started doing that and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, man, this is, this is what I want to do. And I kind of, it kind of all clicked. 
And so it took a while. It took, you know, close to a year to, to, to figure out that, yeah, this is what I want to do. And then I, I started um, doing the talks and I've decided that that's what I'm going to do now for the next couple of years, at least until, um, you, you know, to, to share my story and to share this, this whole experience. And, and my goal is to be able to, to travel throughout the world and, and share this and share the story. And so the one in Australia where you met me, that was the first one I'd done um, overseas, you know, outside of, outside of Africa was, was, that was the first talk. And that was, it was just fantastic. What an experience. It was, it was really cool to be over there in Australia and to, and to do this. And I, and I got to ride motorcycles there as well. So it was a, it was a double tick. <laughs> um, and so the goal now is to, is to, is to do these, you know, share the story, you know, do the talks and, and share the story with people over the world. Um, and my website is is Joey Evans, J O E Y E V A N S dot C O dot Z A, and so people can can contact me via that one. Um, the the book is available. It would be a lot easier just to to get the ebook. It's only published here in South Africa, but the ebook is available from Para to Dakar, which is th- that whole thing we spoke a little bit about in the beginning. The, the race used to be called the Perry Dakar. Uh, you know, because it was from Paris to Dakar, and so for me, it was from paraplegic to Dakar. That was that was my race. So, so that's what the book is. And yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to you know in the next year, you know, in the next year, especially to to, to travel as far and wide as I can, and to and to and to share the story. So, what do your daughters think? You know, because they're what eighteen or nineteen now, seventeen. 15 and 13, do I get that? Uh, 18, 17, 15, 14, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, well, what that, do you think? Oh, well, you know, when it all happened, it was, it was scary for them as well. You know, they worried and there was tears at times and things. But we had a moment at the airport when I got back, you know, where, you know, you'll be able to see the, the videos on YouTube and things, I'm sure. And, you know, where they were just, you know, they just ran up and we, you know, the six of us with Meredith, we just hugged. And it was just, man, it was just such an incredible moment. And so they shared this whole dream with me. They helped me raise the money. They, um, they, they watched that computer every day and they cheered me right through the race. And, you know, they were there at our real finish, you know, coming home. And, you know, they're just a part of this whole story. But uh, they have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Dakar because, you know, we have a little bit of a standing joke at home where when they go through tough times at school or someone's picking on them or they've got a tough time, I'll say to them, I'll say, hey, you know, when I was at the Dakar, I had tough times too and what I did, and they're like, oh, Dad, please, not Dakar again. You know, they're like, they're so sick of hearing these life stories from Dakar. <laughs> but I've got to. I've got four really good speeches that I'm working on for their weddings about the Dakar rally. <laughs> oh my gosh, that will be incredible. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, you know, Joey, I hope to see you here back here in Australia. And um, when I, I saw you, I said, you know, if you ever, um, if you had the night off on Sunday, come up and spend some time with us up on the farm. Um, and I, that invitation is still open to you so I can't take you on the Fink race I know nothing about it I just know how to direct you towards it so um and my son loves motorbike riding and we've got a motorbike on the farm so anytime um you and your family are in Australia you know we'd we'd love to see you here and if anybody I, I, I'm saying this to the audience if anybody would uh, love to hear Joey um get on YouTube because there's some amazing videos actually Joey I watched a video and 
I think the video I watched, did you video after your, your bike was um, smashed over? Did you video that? I did. I yeah. did. What I did was, it was, you know, I had a friend here in South Africa and he would always take photos every, any time he had a crash on a race. He'd always take a photo before he picked his bike up and he would make selfie videos kind of thing and stuff. And then he would share these online. And I looked at this over the years and I was like, man, I just love reading his adventures. You know, it was just in, it was incredible because he, he had all this footage, whereas me with the, I'd have this racer mentality where if I drop my bike, it's like, get it up, get it going, get started, go, go, go. Um, and, I, and I realized over the last few years, you know, leading up to Dakar that those few seconds it takes to, to take the photo um, and to make the video, it takes just a few seconds, but then you have those memories forever. Mm. And so I started doing that just a race or two before Dakar. And when the guy went over my, my bike at Dakar, um, I stood there just just broken, but but I made sure to document it. So I actually took a photo before I even moved the bike out of the track. I stood the bike up, I videoed the bike, and then when I fixed the bike, I pressed record on my phone and I stuck it into a little bush there and I recorded I recorded fixing that bike and and doing what I could to get that bike working. And and I never at the time thought I'd I'd do these talks or anything like that. That never or write a book. That was never ever on the cards, you know, when I was there or before that just kind of came afterwards but to have that footage now is is super incredible I'm so I'm so glad I did it yeah I I, I when you were talking about it, I'm thinking I'm sure I saw the YouTube video of this I, I'm pretty sure I did so I, I good all right so everybody can go on YouTube and and have a look at it and I'll see if I can find it and I'll link that into the show notes well, we're at the end of our hour to oh, we've gone over the hour but I could have kept going but I um, I really want to thank you, Joey, for your time and uh, also for your inspiration. And um, I, lo- I love your wife. I've fallen in love with her. Maybe we should interview her. <laughs> She'd be amazing. Uh, Meredith is just um, quite, she is uh, yeah, she's, she's quite a lady, just even, you know, even though I haven't met her, but just to hear what she did um, and how she supported you. And and, and I think it was, it was like a give take because you said no and then she said, yes, you're doing it. You know, it's, uh, it's incredible. So I want to... Sorry, you were saying? No, I was saying she, she, she really is fantastic and, and she has supported me, you know, so much through this and it's been difficult, you know. Um, it has been. Um, but we both look back at it and go like, it was the right thing. We, we, we did the right thing. Yeah, definitely. So I hope all of our listeners have also enjoyed this. Please um, give it to your husbands to listen to. I am sure they will absolutely love it, especially if they love motorbike riding and have heard of the Dakar. And um, if you would like to give us a five-star rating, just go five-star rating. Just go to iTunes, and you can find us on the Wellness couch.com forward slash up for a chat we're also on facebook as up for a chat uh, we will um, love to hear your comments and what you think and and ask if you want to listen to meredith's story let us know we'll see if we can get meredith on up for a chat so goodbye to everybody and um, this is all about awakening the change within and um, creating a ripple effect that changes the world and Joey Evans has definitely done that. Thanks everybody and bye for now. 
This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.